I don't fancy myself uh, uh, a Stephen King fan. I don't know how many of you are, are big readers, but there was this snapshot that he painted a picture of, and I want to use it to set up our, uh, our message tonight. Um, if you have um, maybe an outline, if you have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to turn with me. Uh, we're going to jump into the book of Hosea, and I'll, I'll tell you about Hosea in a little bit. But in this book, I think it comes from the Dark Tower series. There's this um, kind of out of place, out of time, gunslinger knight. It's a, it's a peculiar character, but he's been really well trained to uphold what is right, uh, trained in, in, in really just a, a great warrior in battle, but he's been trained to keep his poise and his composure. And he has this interesting experience where he meets up with modern day police officers. And after viewing and observing them at length, he comes to the conclusion, this sort of gunslinging night about these modern day police officers, and he says, they just seem so out of shape, both mentally and physically, and they seem to spend a lot of time polishing their weapons. And so he made the conclusion and he says, they spend way more time on the weapons that they wear than the weapon that they are. I think that is a really important word for us today as people who are trying to live and practice a living faith. Most of us do not feel spiritually dangerous. Most of us don't necessarily feel like we're spiritually even capable of participating in God's strategy on earth. And yet, when we read through the promises of Scripture about our identity in Christ, the image we bear, the purpose we've been given, the power we possess, that's exactly what Scripture has told us and we've been enlisted into. So it's this beautiful framework. And, but here's what happens. I think a lot of times, if not always, we get lured into this sort of unassuming, underwhelming faith. Can I just say something? That will never satisfy. We have this maybe expectation that God's going to fix things, change things, make them better, and yet we walk into this unassuming and underwhelming faith. And so um, this is kind of starting to frame in the kind of potential that we have. Now, when we talk about danger uh, and, and being quote-unquote, spiritually dangerous. We need to talk about that because there's potential on two sides. It's sort of a double-edged sword, and here's what I mean by that. On the one side, we have the, the danger, if you will, of underestimating what the Holy Spirit can and wants to do in us and through us. Guilty. But on the flip side of that, we can also underestimate the small decisions and even the indecisions that lead us further away from the heart of God. This is the Christian life. And, and, and so it requires us to be sensitized. It requires us to be attuned so that we won't be lulled into something that feels less than transformational. Worse yet, feels like a religious obligation. So here we have the prophets. The prophets throughout history, throughout scripture, are always the one that throw up a bit of caution, a bit of warning, an interruption to your normal that says, there's a better way. And what the prophets throughout all of scripture are doing is they're reminding who the people of God are in light of who God is. 
I need that reminder. I am so glad you're here today. I've got to say, as I was, this isn't just, maybe some of you like to cook and you go to your favorite recipes. Pastors often go back to things they've taught before. I'm talking about stuff that I'm mining from scripture and excited to talk about that I've never really made this recipe. And when I'm diving into this, I'm having this picture of what God has been wanting to do. And so the prophet always, the role of the prophet was always to be sort of this interruption for us and remind us of who we are in light of who God is. And so this is, you know, we're sort of like, like the Israelites, we get lulled into things like complacency. We get lulled into things like busyness. We get lulled into like a misprioritization of our life. We get lulled into greed and, and even corruption. These are things that we get lulled into. And the role of the prophet interrupts us. Interrupts what we think might make us happy. Interrupts us what we think would keep us safe. Interrupts us what we think is actually, you know, might, might change us in some way. And he says, There's, there is a better way. And so like this gunslinger that I just told you about, the prophets face the people of God uh, who, who, who are struggling, I think, with the same stuff we struggle with. I mean, this is coming from like 3,000 years ago, and it feels so relevant and so timely for what we contend with as we contend with our faith. Uh, because here's probably my greatest struggle as a, as a Christian. I forget whose I am, and I forget where my strength comes from. Totally just missed a great chance to say amen, Dave. <laughs> Nevertheless, tonight I want to open, uh, well, I want to start a series. And the series is called Summer Shorts. It's a series of, uh, as we look at kind of one-off messages through some of the minor prophets. Now, let me just qualify the difference between a minor and a major prophet. Um, nothing. You have major prophets, and the major prophets are only distinguished as major because they take longer to say what they are supposed to say, the minor prophets get just a lot less ink. That's the difference. But their words are poignant and very pointed. Their words are timeless. And that's why I feel like, and each one of them has this message. Now, most of us have a view of the prophet, much like, if we're honest, a view of God, that we're going to get, that, that we're about to get it. That somehow God's angry and the prophet is speaking this angry rebuke and we better shape up or we're going to get shipped out. And especially when we view the God of the Old Testament, I hear lots of people say, oh, don't like reading about the Old Testament God because he seems so upset with us. He seems so full of wrath. And what we see, once we understand covenant relationship, that is far from the case. Is God a God of consequences? Sure. But would you rather walk with a God who, who like abhors injustice and abuse and idolatry or winks an eye at it and doesn't actually care? So this is a God who's actively parenting his people. And so Hosea comes along and, and he has this sort of word for the people of God. Now, what was going on in the life of Hosea is Israel had been, and this is just a little background so we, we can get this. What I would love is that maybe over the next week, you just use Hosea uh, to really mine for some stuff that you probably have never even thought of reading the book of Hosea. But there's some really powerful stuff here. Um, 
What was happening during the time of Hosea is Israel had been broken into two kingdoms. You had Israel in the north, which is often called in the book of Hosea, Ephraim or, or, or Jacob, and then the southern kingdom, which was now Judah. And there was this split, and th there's, there's more church history and, and uh, beyond that, but I'll just s simply say that way. And what the book of Hosea is, it's a collection of 25 years of speaking and writing, mostly in the form of poetry. Now, I'm not a great literary person, so I have a hard time discerning poetry. But what I hope to do is make sense out of some of this. So if you went back and you took some notes and you read Hosea, you're like, oh my God, this, this, this feels like a, a letter written to me. This feels like a message um, with my name on it. Now, here's what he does. Jeroboam II was king, and he was one of the worst kings. And what had happened is, is they had become, sort of experienced some modest success, the Israelites, conquering some other nations, but they had become spiritually bankrupt. And so what had happened is, is they had kind of allowed in this kind of commonplace of greed and corruption. They had allowed unlawful sexual relationships. They had allowed all of these other things to come into and become normal place. And then they kept going and worshiping at the altar as if nothing was wrong. And here comes Hosea, he's like, and, and God's kind of calling him out to kind of give a, thus saith the Lord, y'all got it wrong. Uh, and then there was this, even this like murder, and it was, you know, there had just become this sort of violent, corrupt, um, greedy, materialistic, individualistic society, and God's heart, the father heart, is now broken for his children, and he invites Hosea to come through. So this is his calling. And his calling is really to a living faith, which is, I mean, someone should start a church with the whole aim to teach people how to have a living faith, because this is Hosea's calling, right? Uh, and, and Hosea isn't just giving a theoretical message. You want to know what God invited Hosea to do? He says, Hosea, I want you to take Gomer, a prostitute who's not done with her adultery, and I want you to invite her to be your wife. And, and so chapters one through three is this invitation where they get married, they start a family, they have three kids. All the while, what he's talking about is this picture of what he is hoping for and how he feels about the, the people of God who are wayward. In other words, the people of God has forgot their first love. They're prostituting their hearts out to all of these lesser loves. And God is like this jealous lover and says, oh no, I can't be shared that way. Oh no, 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 I want your whole heart. I, I want you to be solely sufficient in me. I wanna be your sole sufficiency. And so he brings them back. And what we see out of this picture is that even though they're growing cold and distant, they forgot to love God as their first love. But God does not forget Israel or us, even though um, we choose to walk in self-destruction. Okay, super important. You might live with this idea that God's sort of upset with me, but that's not actually true. And what we see out of this Old Testament passage is that God doesn't forget them even though they're self-destructing. 
Oh my gosh, what a gracious word for us. What, what an encouraging word. What a hopeful word. And so he invites them to, the, to do this and, and he invites them to this living faith. And really what he's doing is he invites Hosea as this prophetic symbol of how God feels about all of Israel. And so he says, I want you to marry. And, and here's the thing. He's like, you're going to wed to her. You're gonna, she's going to become the mother of your children and she's still going to go out on him. And he's like, I want you to go find her. I want you to go reconcile with her. I want you to go pay the debts back to her lovers. And I want you to commit to her and love her in faithfulness, even though she won't be any of that. Okay, living faith, right? This isn't a guy standing up to give a theoretical message like, I've got this word from the Lord. No, he's got this living faith that he said, that's what you want me to do? To be this living illustration of your unconditional love? Mm -hmm. Be faithful even though your wife won't be. Because I'm going to be faithful even though my people won't be. Uh, okay, I I've never not wanted to be a prophet so badly in all my life. <laughs> like that's, that's like the curse, right? And so listen to what he says in Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. He says, I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as Lord. See, Again, our view of prophets is sort of this angry, like God, is this angry rebuke. This, you're going to get it. But the nature of covenant relationship is care and concern, not coercion. And so God is painting a picture of what it means to be in covenant. And God is pursuing us, not writing us off. Now, that's chapters one through three, this sort of courtship, this prophetic symbol that unfolds. Chapters four through 10, and it's only 14 chapters, but four through 10 is God's, or, uh, like the, what, what happens is, is God's invitation. And the invitation is for each of us to know him personally. So the hypocrisy of Israel's worship, they're breaking the Ten Commandments, there's social injustice. In other words, there's immigrants among them, there's widows, there's orphans, and they're not caring. There's people who have, and there's people who have not, and they're not doing enough for them. They're like, that must be someone else's problem. That must be the government's problem. They're like, oh, no, 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 no. This is not what it means to be one of the children of God. And so there's this picture. And then the other thing that they've done, because they had some moderate success, is they put more trust in their political ability military alliances uh, with, with Assyria and Egypt. Does this sound mildly like the, a, a current commentary? Like, oh, we're so shrewd in our dip diplomacy, or we've got this thing figured out, oh, we're the, we're the greatest military superpower of all time. And he's like, oh my God, this, this is not the picture that God wants for us. And eventually, Assyria kind of double-crosses them and, and conquers them in, in short order. And so it was, it, 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 Hosea was sort of proved right. Um, <clears throat> but there, uh, what, what we see here, in, in, um, and this is Hosea chapter 4, listen to what he says. And by the way, if in reading this, um, I'm pulling from a, a, a translation called the NLT, the New Living Translation, because it reads so, um, it's very readable. Um, it's very contemporary in its language and it helps you kind of discern a little bit more what's going on. And so this is what he says. 
The Lord has brought charges against you saying, there's no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land. You make vows and you break them. You kill and you steal and you commit adultery. There's violence everywhere, one murder after another. That is why your land is in mourning. Does our land feel like it's in mourning? Does it feel like there's this collective grief? Uh, he, says, there, uh, he says, don't point your finger at someone else and try and pass the blame. My complaint, you priests, is, uh, is that with you, is with you. My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. In other words, the people who are organizing the kind of religious gatherings, the sort of spiritual path, aren't doing a good enough job. They're sort of creating this religious structure to make people feel good about themselves, but it's not actually transforming them and inviting them into something different, i.e. a living faith. And he says, they have exchanged the glory of God for the shame of idols. And when the people bring their sin offerings, the priests get fed. So the priests are glad when the people sin. Because what was common there? You didn't bring necessarily a tithe or an offering. You brought a, a, an animal sacrifice. It was usually a lamb or a dove. And guess who got the meats? And so they're like, wow, these people, it's sort of like their penance is, I mean, we're getting fat off their sin. That's, that's really what it's, it's painting a picture of. And what the priests do, the people also do. So now I will punish both priests and people for their wicked deeds. What's the problem? There's no knowledge of God. Maybe say it this way. They don't know what they don't know. And if they do, maybe they just don't even care. But the picture is of knowledge. And our picture in the post-enlightenment era is that if I could know more, get a degree in it, then somehow it'll change my heart. And we know that's not true. In the Bible, knowledge isn't just a collection, an intellectual possession of facts. In the Bible, Biblical knowledge is always about shared experience. It's an intimate knowing. It's about personal relationship. So to know someone is to know what they love, right? I always say like in marriage, there's just no faking it, right? For better, or for worse, for rich or poor, if you're having a bad day, you just can't hide it. It's just what the nature of marriage is like. So it is with God. And so he's kind of taking off the veneer there's an intimate knowing we know likes and dislikes we know what uh, would grieve and what would bring joy this is the kind of intimate knowing that we're invited into and so uh, in the midst of personally experiencing this wayward wife he tries to lift up the people of God so that they see a, a larger or a long view of who God really is now why is that significant so just to review, what, what we first have is, is Hosea's calling, and the calling is to a living faith. And then we have God's invitation, and the invitation is that you would know him personally. Yes, growing up, but it's, it's more than just uh, facts and figures. I mean, there's really smart people, high IQ people, that don't have wisdom. And this is what the text is drawing out. A knowledge is a shared experience, a knowledge. And that's why one of the reasons why I wanted to create rhythms like we have is so that we can actually experiment or participate with who we think God is. A personal exchange with the heart of God. I don't always feel like giving, but I believe God is a generous God, right? 
I mean, this, this is the picture. So we need a plan to be able to experience, to know God personally and see God's faithfulness in our lives. Now, uh, and so here's what he does. He's like, and again, not a theoretical message, but he lifts people up so he can see the whole panoramic of who God is throughout history and covenant relationship, which is really significant. Why? Because you and I have a huge tendency to want to allow our faith to define, be defined by how I feel in the moment. Super dangerous. I've been going through a rough stretch, so therefore I'm a little bit more mad at God. I'm not getting answers to prayer. I'm not seeing God's provision. And so it affects my affection for God. This is not wisdom. What he does is he lifts people up to see the panoramic of who God has been in covenant relationship and his faithfulness all along the way. And he does it by giving a bit of a history lesson. Listen, some of us have known each other for more than a decade. Some of us have known each other for three years or, or even less. But if I could find out the details of all of your life, I could begin to identify the faithfulness of God even before you said, I do. But here's what he does. Um, and, and this is kind of our response. And our response is simply, I would just call it finding wisdom. Not gaining necessarily smarts, but finding wisdom. And we move past current circumstances and we now take a longer look at God's redemption, God's love. Because we simply can't judge, by, judge God by how we feel today. It's dangerous. And so chapter 11, and he starts to wind down his verse. Chapter 11, and if you're a parent, if you understand this dynamic, he, or had a parent, I mean, this is, this is God painting a picture of what it means to have a wayward son. This is actually what Jesus very might, might be referring to when he tells the story of the prodigal son. Because what's the issue here? I've got a child who has gone off the rails. I've got a child who are living their life how they want to be. They're, they're rebellious. And now as a parent, they're emotionally torn. So on the one hand, there's anger and sadness. And on the other hand, this is chapter 11, there's forgiveness beckoning, rooting, cheering us to return to him. This is the father's heart. This is the picture of the prodigal in the Old Testament. Chapters 12 and 13 are fascinating. And again, if you had some little bit of Sunday school lessons growing up, you would start to maybe reference or, or recognize some of these hints that he's dropping along the way. But he starts to call out different points in Israel's history, even beyond that current generation. First thing he does is he brings up, in, and this is chapter 12, he talks about Jacob lying about his birthright. Jacob and Esau, and, and Jacob stole the birthright. He stole the blessing. Jacob became known as this liar, this deceiver, but then God broke him in the strongest part physically of his body, wrestled with him all night, and gave the kind of this new revelation. And the picture was, and now the whole nation gets restored as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and who? Jacob. Well, then he goes on and he talks about, and this is Hosea, talking to the people, long view of who God is. He talks about the Israel's wilderness rebellion. And it should have been a short trek from Egypt to Canaan to the promised land, except that it took 40 years because of just their rebellion and their stubbornness and their griping and their complaining. And then he talks about, oh yeah, oh yeah. And then there's that moment where Israel's choice of King Saul, 
Come on. He's giving them a history lesson. What was so wrong about that? At the time, there was no king over Israel, but every other nation had a king. God was leading God's people through judges. But they looked around at every other one of their neighbors and they go, hey, we want a king like everyone else, which is sort of a, a snub to God and having this direct connection with them. And they're like, give us a guy. And they chose Saul, who's a terrible king. And what, what Hosea is really saying here is, friends, people of God, some things will never change. And some things never change about me. I, I get very short-sighted with God's faithfulness. I let my emotions sort of take over and I forget how faithful God has been. I forget the blessing of God. I forget sort of the presence and the care and the nurture and, and the kindness. I, I forget, I, I fail to see the subtleties of God's presence in my life. And, and Hosea's like, come on, let's just be honest. Some things will never, never change except the good news is God never, never changes either. And he pleads with them and he's talking about how to turn and to repent and know and then gives them this promise. This is Hosea 14.4. He says, then I will heal your faithlessness. Okay, bring it. I need that. I will heal your faithlessness. My love will know no bounds for my anger will be gone forever. Another version talks about I will heal their waywardness and I will love them freely. And now Hosea begins to use this language of a tree, which is this beautiful kind of nod back to the covenant with Abraham that I will bless you and through your seed and you will be fruitful and you'll be multiplied. And he uses the image, this familiar image of a tree and God blessing the nations through a Abraham's family. And he says in 14 verse eight, I am like a tree that is always green and all your fruit comes from me. Come on now, I mean, who says there's no grace in the Old Testament? God's not just waiting to bring the hammer on us, right? Does this sound like a God who's angry at you or given up? Does this sound like a God who's distant or laissez-faire? This, this, these writings are not locked in the past. What Hosea's poetry reveals to us is the truth about God's character and the human condition. And God's purpose is always and forever to heal and to save his people, his creation. As I was preparing for this, and um, uh, there's a movie that comes to mind, and it's an old movie, so I'm going to claim a statute of limitations that um, it's okay to give spoiler alerts, because this is like from 94. Has everyone seen Forrest Gump? So it's fair to talk about Forrest Gump openly and honestly, but from the earliest of ages, Forrest loved who? The first time he met Jenny was on the school bus and he comes walking in with his, you know, because mama says, my spine's like a question mark. And, you know, he's got this, uh, and he comes in with his braces and he's constantly being picked on and he has no friends, but he sits on the bus with her and they become fast friends. And she teaches him stuff and, and, and he teaches her stuff and they just become friends. But the whole movie is really un playing out Hosea. It's her chasing all of these lesser lessons. Now, she grew up in an abusive home. She never wanted to go home. She always wanted to keep hanging out later and later with Forrest. But there was times throughout the movie that there was this plot, and it kept, the interruption became the main plot. It was their relationship. 
And so there's one time where she's singing on a stage and she felt like she was getting disrespected. And so she runs up and she pushes over the guys and he carries her off the stage only to be pushed back and say, you got to let me go, Forrest. And then there's the other time where there's at the political rally and, and she's getting verbally abused and he punches the guy out and she ends up getting on the bus with him. You got to stop chasing me, Forrest. Till finally, she shows up to Greenbow, Alabama, comes home, right? Well, she's sick at that time, we learn later. And she says, Forrest, will you marry me? And he's like, Jenny, of course I'll marry you. I've always loved you. And, and I think that's what God is saying to us. I've known about all of your other lovers. And it doesn't change my love for you one bit. This, this is the picture of what God's doing through Hosea's life. This invitation, this calling, our response. We gotta find this kind of knowledge and wisdom because this is what God's inviting us. And in Hosea, this is God's plea. He marries this prostitute who's not done with other lovers. And God's like, go get her and bring her back. Be faithful because I'm faithful. And he keeps chasing after her like God does with us. And so here's the invitation that God gives from Hosea to Israel. I am infinitely and irrevocably for you. Stop thinking that I'm against you or that I'm mad at you or that I'm keeping a long naughty list against you. I am for you. This is the picture. So even though you self-destruct, I want to renew my vows. And this living faith of, of Hosea is just so humbling to me. This is an actual person. And so the question is, like, how do we return? How do we return? Well, I think it starts with just naming our idols. What are the things that maybe you have prostituted your heart to other loves? Have you settled for other loves? I mean, at some point, we need to be able to renounce, to come clean with the things that might have kind of maybe shared a, a, a high value space with God. Maybe it's upward mobility, or, or, or maybe it's the sins of the past. Maybe it's our childhood abuse, or our childhood neglect, or abandonment, or, 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 or maybe it's, it's, it's someone who, who kind of abused us or abandoned us. Um, maybe, maybe it's, whatever it is, we need to be able to name that which has become sort of our idol. See, because the problem with the Israelites isn't that they weren't worshiping God, but they were worshiping other gods as well. And he's like, uh-uh, I am one heck of a jealous lover and I want your whole heart unto myself. Uh, and so I guess the thing I was thinking about is I don't doubt any one of you have a love for God. But if you're like me, we, we all, I think, kind of wrestle with other loves, other lesser loves that sort of cord us away or cool us or, or allow us to tap the brakes on our affection for God, on our obedience with God, on, uh, on our service to God, whatever it might be. And so... What is it then that keeps you from trusting God more or surrendering more? What is it that keeps you from walking in, in faith more? Be on, I invite you to come up and join me. There's, there's a song that, uh, it's an old song by Mark Cohn. Uh, and uh, if, you, if you know him, he's an old 
kind of singer-songwriter, and I was listening to this, and I said, oh, B, would, would you just, could you just learn this song, and could you sing it? I have the lyrics up, and I want this to be a meditation as, as we just, as we prepare our hearts for communion, because that's where we're going, and I don't want you to take communion tonight without actually thinking about the idols, the lesser loves, the things that maybe gain too much affection in your life, too much of a stronghold in your life, the things that maybe are yet named and, and yet surrendered. And so this word that was given 3,000 years ago or so, I think is timely today because it's a love story. And God's just wanting to court us back. He says, You're, you could be unfaithful, but I'm not done with you yet. And so let's just listen. It's a song called True Companion, and then we'll uh, begin to go into communion tonight. 